And take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 4. We're going to read today uh, all of the closing remarks from Philippians 4.2. We'll go all the way through 4.9. We're going to focus on just one of those points. Um, but Philippians 4.2 to Philippians 4.9. I ask that you read with me now. I implore Euodia and I implore Sintaish to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. With Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Um, that's where we'll stop for this morning. Um, this morning we're going to specifically think through verse 4. We'll be a little abbreviated to allow time for the Lord's Supper at the end. But I have to be honest, verse 4 has always been a difficult verse for me. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Um, I'm not sure, for, for me personally, that there is a verse that is uh, as convicting and requires as much thought and thinking and faith as that one. Um, it's not an easy verse. Um, it doesn't mean be happy. It means more than that. It says more than that. It says rejoice, which, you know, without getting deep into the etymology here, it's the idea of being glad. Um, in the Lord, which is not um, what I often uh, go to for joy or for pleasure or for gladness in my mind, in my thinking. Rejoicing is an internal thing that sometimes becomes external, but not always. Often it is merely internal, which merely is not the right word. Um, because what's on the inside is who we actually are as people. So uh, it's, it's something that is internal that sometimes becomes external. So internally, I'm to rejoice in the Lord. And then the, the, the time description is a tough one for me too. Because it says always. And it's not a throwaway statement 
for Paul because it's repeated. Again, I will say rejoice. So there's an emphasis. It's not meant to be read quickly. It's not meant to just fly over. And we can tell as he's giving kind of rapid fire instructions at the, at the end of Philippians 4, he's concerned that they might just go over it. So he pauses and he says, let me say it again, rejoice. And it's very challenging uh, for me. In some ways, I find the external commands in Scripture to be relatively easy. Um, don't lie. Not that I don't lie or that I, I never struggle with deceit, but that's a relatively easy thing to understand. It's not hard to identify what a lie is. It's like a moral black and white thing. You've either done it or you haven't. For a Christian, there's a resolution for it. You know, there's forgiveness for us. There's a, a quick confession that might be made reconciliation, and then you're done. Just don't do it again. If you do it again, there's repentance, reconciliation. You know, it's, there's, a, there's a way to deal with that. But this is an internal uh, way of thinking, and that's harder because I'm, I struggle to control my thoughts, and I, I assume you do too. I, I'm assuming that that's not something unique to me, that that is common to the human experience. I struggle to control my thoughts. I also struggle to control my, my feelings. Um, and uh, even though I may seem very emotional to you because on Sunday I'm drawn into worship, throughout the week in my day-to-day -day living, I would not describe myself as an overly emotional person. Um, and, and I struggle to control the way that I feel. And that yet this verse confronts me because it's about... It's about how I feel and how I think. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I'll add a word of caution that we should be careful. We should be careful not to take this verse and to try to evaluate other people with it. And I say that because I'm trying to be cautious with it myself. Um, when it comes to what someone is thinking or feeling... Um, history has told me, experience has told me that I am not very good at judging that in other people. Um, I'm not very good at knowing what someone is thinking or feeling. Um, even when I think that I am, I'm often wrong. So this should be a personal evaluation, yet I'm a pastor, and so I'm up here to try to preach and apply God's word. So I'm, I am going to wrestle internally this morning, for the brief period of time that we look at this, with, um, not, with not judging any of you. Instead, I'm, I'm working to try uh, to think through the text in a way that's helpful for you. And so I've made a number of observations here. I'm sure there are more that could be made. Perhaps better ones that might be made, but I'm, these are the ones that I've made. When it says rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, I want you to first recognize, and this is the first thing that I have here, this is not a naive happiness. It's not a naive happiness. What do I mean by that? I mean, I think that there is a happiness that you'll see in some people's lives. 
I think it's particularly noticeable in children sometimes who are happy or joyful, and it's really almost a blissful ignorance as to how difficult life can be. It's not, it's not real. Um, I, you also see this in celebrities sometimes. Um, people who are at the top of, at the top of the, their career, the top, of, you know, it's, I don't know about you, <laughs> this might just be me, but sometimes when I see, you know, a celebrity who's extremely wealthy and they're happy and they're jumping up and down and telling everybody happiness is a state of mind, it's easy for me to say, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, this is not a naive happiness that Paul is encouraging. In other words, he's not saying you should be happy, you know, kind of thoughtlessly so. Like, you know, don't worry about your problems, just be happy. You know, it's the old, don't worry, be happy idea. You know, you shouldn't, you, you just embrace happiness. Just find a way to be happy. Those are things that the world says. I've not found them to be particularly helpful in life. The idea of, well, I don't worry about that, just be happy. Or, you know, you've got to find your happiness, you know. I've had career people give me the advice that, you know, um, the best you can do in life is find a way to get paid to do something that, you're, that, that makes you happy. I don't know how all of you feel about that. Um, maybe you work in a, a profession that you just, it just makes you happy just to get out of bed and go, go do it every day. I don't know. May, maybe that's you. It'd be great, you know? I think it would be, it would be nice, right? Um, you know, John, those machines got to be fixed, man. It just makes you happy to wake up and think, yes, I get to, get to fix these, you know? I mean, I don't know. Maybe that is you. But I've not found that advice. I work in the glove industry. I found that advice to be particularly helpful over the years. Yeah. Most of us are not going to to consistently find happiness in in the what I would call the effects of Adam's curse that, that we have on the world, which means life is not easy. You don't just walk outside and there's there's food on the ground laying for you to pick up. That's the part of the curse of Adam. That the earth will not give forth its fruit easily for you anymore. It will produce thorns and thistles. This will be difficult for you now. Um, so this is not a naive happiness. Um, if you look at Acts 16, which is when Paul visited Philippi, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I'm not going to read much from it. But if you look at Acts 16 when he visited Philippi, you might remember that he starts in Philippi with a group of Jewish ladies who are praying down by the river um, on the Sabbath. And he um, begins sharing the gospel with these Jewish ladies. One of them named Lydia Believes. More than one end up believing. They end up meeting in this lady's house. She appears to be reasonably wealthy. And... They are growing in the church there until Paul makes the mistake of confronting an evil on the streets that he sees. And then um, he and Silas are brutally beaten and they're put into prison. 
and they're locked into the stocks. And while they're there, they are, I think, rejoicing in the Lord, um, which doesn't mean that they're naively enjoying um, their beaten, wounded bodies being locked into stocks, an uncomfortable position in a prison, but they are praising God. God has a miracle performed in that there is an earthquake and the the cell doors are open and the the bounds that were on the prisoners in the not just Paul and Silas but all the prisoners are loosed and um, you think wow that's amazing God saved them all from from imprisonment but that's not what happens as this is happening the jailer the Philippian jailer is afraid that oh my goodness the prisoners have escaped and he's going to kill himself because he knows that it's going to mean death for him one way or the other. And it's, uh, if you're a jailer in the Roman Empire and a colony in Philippi you, and all the prisoners escape, that's pretty much the end for you. And so Paul cries out and stops him saying, actually, no one has left. Don't harm yourself. No one has left. The jailer is so moved, and clearly it's God at work doing the moving in his life, that he takes Paul and Silas out of the stocks and from the prison, and he takes them back to his own home. He has his family and the members of his house clean their wounds and tend to their bodies that have been beaten. And he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He and his family are baptized. And he takes them back to prison, <laughs> where they are found the next day by the leaders in that Roman colony. Um, in the middle of all this, in verses in verse 34 of Acts 16, it says this to the jailer. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now that's rejoicing in the Lord. He rejoiced along with his entire household. Not that he hadn't been killed because all the prisoners had escaped. But that he had believed in God. In Colossians 1, which we were in in Sunday school this morning... I want you to understand that Paul says this in verse 24 in Colossians 1. Listen to how he says this. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Listen to that. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. I don't know if he rejoiced in the middle of all those sufferings, but he says, I now Rejoice in what I suffered for you. And what, what I would ask is, how many people need to be saved for it to be worth a good beating for you? If, if, we, if I told you, hey, look, this afternoon, uh, somebody's going to get saved. But the cost of that is going to be we're going to have to strip you naked and beat you. You're going you're to be stripped naked by the community and you're going to be beaten. But then somebody's going to be saved. Is that person's soul worth that practically for you? I think a reasonable person would say, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessary. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's required. Paul endured these things. He rejoices on the other end because there are people that are saved. There are people that don't go to hell because of, of what he endured. 
So when he's saying rejoice in the Lord here, it's not a naive happiness that he's talking about. He's saying in the middle of suffering and in the middle of sorrow and while you're paying the cost, be glad in the Lord Jesus. Always be glad in the Lord Jesus. Which I think makes it about faith. It's certainly about faith when Jesus says, Rejoice in being exceedingly glad when you are persecuted, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What kind of persecution would you deal with if you were determined to share Jesus with other people? I don't know. You probably don't know either. You might have suspicions about what might happen. Um, but this is not a naive happiness. This is a joy in the middle of that kind of suffering. Second observation from Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord always, is this is not, this is not chaos. When I say this is not chaos, I mean the life that you're living is not chaos. Probably feels like chaos sometimes. I, I would forgive you for, for it feeling like chaos. Um, I was talking a, a, about a week ago with a group of people and we were talking about just the challenge of human suffering in life and, and how unexpected sometimes it is. And it's not... Oftentimes, it's not so much the suffering itself that is the most difficult. It's the idea that there doesn't seem to be any, anyone at the helm of this. <laughs> I'm suffering, and I don't know what the end of it is going to be. I, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I don't even know when it will end. It's not even clear. To, this could be years or it could be days. I'm not even clear when this will come to a conclusion. Um, if there's a, if you've ever dealt with someone who's had cancer before, it, it's like that. Um, if you've dealt with someone uh, who has lost a loved one and is mourning the loss of a loved one and is trying to figure out what life after losing that person is like, there are all kinds of circumstances. If you've ever done something that you're horribly ashamed of, and it's very public, and now you have to own that in front of everyone, and there's the uncertainty of, I'm not, part of the suffering of this is that I don't even know, honestly, what this will mean for the rest of my life. Like, if someone could clearly explain to me when this comes to an end, and what the outcome will be, and what lies ahead, it would be easier to deal with, but right now it just seems out of control. Um, you can rejoice in the Lord in that God is sovereign and He is in control. Um, in Ephesians 1.11, God is described as the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things according to the counsel of of his will. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, there is an encouragement here. 
They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Just because you have come face to face with the reality that you are not in control does not mean that no one is in control. You can rejoice in God and in His sovereignty. And that this is not chaos. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, He's God, which means He's not going to come down from heaven and explain everything that He's doing to you. This is the great mistake that Job makes in the middle of his suffering. He knows he's suffering. He's willing to have faith in God. If you remember at the beginning of that story, when Job is suffering, do you remember what he says? He says, um, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is not struggling with whether or not God is in control. But in the middle of wrestling with that, he begins to demand an audience with God. That if God would only tell Job his faults and why all of this was happening to him. God does not come down and explain to Job what is happening to him. He comes down and demonstrates to Job that he is God. And he can do what he wishes. And that being a follower of him simply requires faith. You can rejoice in the Lord that what you're experiencing is not chaos. You are not in control of it, but God is. That ought to be something for you to be glad about. Third observation. You are not alone. This is a biblical encouragement. You can rejoice because he will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You are not alone. Um, in Psalm 23, when I was a kid, uh, you memorized Psalm 23. That's just what you did. You memorized Psalm 23. Remember memorizing that, Nathan? Yep. Um, that and the books of the Bible and the Ten Commandments. So we're not optional. You memorize Psalm 23. Um, and I'm glad for that. All four of you making your kids memorize Psalm 23. But Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The idea of the Lord being your shepherd is that the Lord is with you. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. God is with me. He does this. And then his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Now, if you've ever done anything with animals before, you know what shepherds, what caregivers use rods and sticks for. So they're not always gentle. Joe has told me these stories about these shocking sticks that get applied to the rear ends of pigs that won't go where they're supposed to go. Um, I don't think we're, we're supposed to envision ourselves being electrocuted by God. But the rod, the staff of God as our shepherd is the idea that as I'm meandering my way kind of cluelessly through life, God is poking and prodding and reminding me that I am not alone. 
If you're a sheep and you're being told, go forward, go forward, go forward, and you're like, I don't want to go forward. It looks scary over there. There's the stick or the rod. No, go forward, go forward. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If if you're a sheep, I'd imagine a very shadowy valley that looks difficult and not a place that you would voluntarily meander your way through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. So you're not alone. You can be glad in the Lord always. And you think about Paul and Silas in a dungeon, in a prison, in the middle of the night. Uncertain if they'll ever see the light of day again. They were just beaten with rods. Who's to say execution doesn't come in the morning? The church in Jerusalem has no idea where they are. There's no one coming to the rescue. (laughs) There's no great court of, of appeals being made for them. They're forgotten. That's where people go in dungeons, forgotten. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Silas, let's sing. Silas, what do you want to sing next? So, you are not alone. Now, I mentioned the Hebrews 13.5 verse, which is where... We get, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want to warn you here, and I want to do this gently, but I do want to warn you. This is what that verse says. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I do think that in my life, when I struggle to rejoice in the Lord always, there's an element of it that I've brought on myself because I haven't lived my life. I'm not living my life free from covetousness, free from discontentment. I've lived a life Or I'm living a life that once more, the next thing, the next possession, the next accomplishment, the next achievement, whatever it is. And what this is telling me in Hebrews 13, 5 is live your life without covetousness and be content because you have God. This is what it says. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see how he makes, he makes the grounds for Christian contentment in the fact that you have God. So be careful. And again, I want to warn you gently. We live lavish lifestyles. Every one of us compared to the early Christian living in a multi-generational family home made of mud bricks with one or two rooms. 
How many people in this room can pull out a device and look up anything in the world in about five seconds? We lay on couches and we sleep in beds and we don't walk places. We get in a car and drive ourselves there in a cushioned seat and we take the time to warm it up first if we want our wives to be happy with us. She warmed it up this morning. That's why I got, I got an evil look. She warmed up the car this morning. I was doing something important. but We live lavish lives, but can I ask you something? Is it ever really enough? Is it ever really enough? And you don't have to answer that question individually. We've already answered it as a people. We've already answered it as a people. It's why we can go home and watch football on television because the advertising agencies know that we've answered it as a people and they'll pay the NFL millions of dollars. They'll pay those television stations millions of dollars to be able to show you the thing that you don't have and that you should want. People who have a problem with professional sports, let me tell you, professional sports only exist. Those people only get paid because we have a covetousness problem. We always want more. And the people who make money off of selling things know that we do. So gently I would remind you, be careful, Christian. If you find yourself struggling to rejoice in the Lord, it might be because you've lost sight of contentment in your life. We all are guilty of that, I think. Fourth observation, Jesus has overcome the world. That's a very biblical observation. John 16, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That's what I read from this morning in the Sinclair Ferguson piece. Jesus has defeated the work of Satan. He's overcome the world. I don't know if you're going to overcome what you're facing at your job or in your family or in your finances or with your health. I don't know about that. I really don't. You don't either. You know? You look over here, see a guy like Mr. Rodas there who's at the helm of a big athletic department. Now, I don't know if you're going to overcome those problems. Uh, every team could have a losing season. I don't know. You know, some coach or some athlete could do something scandalous that ruins your reputation. I mean, I don't know. But you can be glad in the Lord, even if you can't be glad in your profession. Even if you can't be glad in your friends. You can be glad in the Lord because he has overcome the world and in doing so. Has called you to overcome the world with him. He's given you the victory. He's won it and made you an inheritor to every good thing that comes from it. Eternal life, peace with God, fellowship with him now, freedom from sin and suffering, a resurrected body, everything. He won the victory. You can be glad in him. He's given you all of the spoil. He's not withheld any of it from you. And yes, there is a struggle between flesh and spirit right now in your life. You still live in fallen flesh. You still have the corruption of Adam in your life. Yes, you're still going to sin, but even that is temporary. And you have to endure and live this life well. 
That's not eternity for you. Jesus has overcome the world. Which brings me to the last one. We'll close with this. You should rejoice in evangelism and discipleship. You should rejoice in evangelism and discipleship. If your Christian life is lacking joy, I wonder if you are given to telling people about Jesus or to seeing them grow in Christ. Because in the Bible, the joy of the apostles, the joy of John, the joy that's described to us is the joy in serving the Lord and seeing what God is doing in the lives of other people as you serve. That's the joy. If you are lacking I wonder, are you sharing Jesus? Are you devoting and sacrificing in your life to see people grow in Christ? This is from, this is from old man John in 3 John verses 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He doesn't mean his biological children. What do you think you're going to be happy about at the end of your life? There is no greater joy than seeing the spiritual growth, the spiritual life in people whom God has allowed you to minister to and to serve. There's no greater Christian joy than that. I think we are living that, but we lose track of it. This, this church here in New Paris is never going to have a thousand people in it. Okay? I mean, I would be very surprised. It's probably never going to have like 500 people in it or 400 people in it. I'm never going to be a famous pastor or preacher. Justin's probably not going to either. You know, uh, you know, JJ is probably not going to be a famous Christian recording artist. It's pro probably not going to happen. Why do we do this then? Is the goal of what we're doing to see a progression where at the end of the day we're all wealthy and we're all famous and we have so many more people than we had before. And boy, look at, look at all the people who deserve the credit for all the explosive and amazing stuff that's happened. No. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to serve Jesus, to see people saved, and to see people discipled, to grow spiritually. That's what we're trying to do. If you're struggling to find joy and happiness in your Christian walk. Are you doing that? I think you should answer that question. The title of this message, Marty, you don't have to text me and ask this afternoon, is Don't Be Miserable. Philippians 4.4. 4. 
Don't be miserable. But be slow to blame everybody else for your lack of joy. Look at yourself. Am I living a life that God's word says I should experience and have joy in what I'm doing? Because if I'm not, it's probably not that other person's fault why I'm not happy. It's probably not them. Um, I have never shared the gospel with someone and seen even the most meager response and not left with a real joy and gladness in what the Lord was doing without a profession of faith. I have never sat down and shared with someone from my heart about my faith and, and watched them listen. Even if they disagreed, watched them listen. Or I didn't walk away saying, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share. If you are not discipling, if you are not sharing the gospel, it doesn't surprise me if your Christian faith is not where you get joy or gladness from. It shouldn't be that way. I would ask you to correct course. And if I can help you with that or if I've hindered that, please tell me. Let's have a word of prayer as come forward to observe the Lord's Supper. Father, you may have called us to suffering and you may have called us to certain sorrows, but you have not called us to be miserable. I thank you for your presence in our life, that you are at the helm, that this world is not chaos. I'm thankful that we are not alone. I'm thankful for what you do if we'll simply offer our lives as sacrifices for the fruit that you will produce. And Father, please keep us free from covetousness, which robs us of our joy and contentment in you. Help us not to elevate the gifts above the giver, but to be satisfied with you alone. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and the gift of him. Help us to remember that in the midst of all the other holiday things that happen. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.